Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And as promised, uh, we've got now a conversation with Anthony Selden, who has written a book about Boris Johnson. Uh, As some of you may remember, when the serialization of the book was published in the Times. Um, It kind of triggered reflections from me and indeed quite a few members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, just really on how surprising and unsurprising the uh, serialization extracts were in the sense that we all knew about the dangerous, chaotic disarray of Johnson's leadership, uh, the indifference to rules, etc. And yet reading it so vividly uh, from someone like Anthony Selden, who would have spoken to many people with his co-author Raymond Newell, 200 people they spoke to who was involved one way or another with Johnson's government, uh, it was kind of shocking. And I said when we were reflecting together on those uh, episodes from the serialization, that uh, once I'd read the book, I'd uh, get uh, Sir Anthony in for a conversation. So let's hear our conversation. It's really interesting, actually, because it was done via a kind of stream, you know. Uh, He was elsewhere, but uh, his video was on. Mine wasn't. I kept it off to try and keep the quality as strong as possible of the audio. Um, But frankly, as he was talking, he kind of conveyed a level of despair that I haven't seen from him before. Um, His head was almost down on the desk where he was speaking from as he reflected on what he found out about the Johnson period. Uh, Anyway, this is our conversation with uh, Anthony Selton on Johnson at 10, The Inside Story. Sir Anthony, reading your book, I kind of every now and again had an extraordinarily weird experience of being taken aback and yet unsurprised by what you uncovered uh, in your many conversations with people in Number 10 and outside. Did you have that same experience that when you spoke to people, you were at times taken aback by what was happening Uh, in number 10 under Boris Johnson, and yet unsurprised? Or did it genuinely surprise you, some of the things that you uncovered in your many conversations with insiders? So, Steve, you and I have been round uh, reporting on the inside of uh, Downing Street for 30 and more years, and I thought that nothing would surprise me, but I reached the reluctant conclusion that this was simply the worst run Downing Street operation of the 21st or 20th century. Uh, There were some 19th century and 18th century prime ministers who were pretty rum and lackadaisical in their running of the centre, but there again, what they were running was far simpler. In a way, he was like an 18th century uh, grandee. It was truly appalling. And I don't think still, Steve, the country has woken up to quite how utterly shambolic uh, Downing Street uh, was. 
and indeed uh, the functioning of the central state to, to have the denigration, the insecurity, uh, the, the, the personal appointments, the personal dismissals, not on the grounds of competence, but on the grounds of who we like or who we trust or who will keep shut up or who will do what I want. It was uh, capricious, uh, unwarranted, unprecedented. Uh, and yes, it, it, it was uh, surprising. It was disgraceful. What do you think it tells us, before we look at some of the fascinating detail you explore in the book and indeed some of the other characters apart from Johnson, but what does it tell us about the state of the Conservative Party, the uh, constraints on a Prime Minister, that this was going on and quite a lot of people must have known about it. The Cabinet must have known what you uncovered subsequently. Um, And yet, until he was forced out, he had considerable sway, didn't he? There there were few... uh, We'll come on to Dominic Cummings in a moment, who emerges as a fascinating figure in your book. But there were no great constraints on this chaotic figure. Uh, Absolutely. I think he had declining power and... uh, one stage, I was wondering, uh, this was a potentially revolutionary moment for the British state when you have a, an unelected chief advisor who dismisses the Chancellor of the Exchequer not on grounds of competence or not objectively on the grounds of competence, but because he was getting in the way to put in somebody who would be a stooge, dismissing a Uh, cabinet secretary and head of the civil service uh, for the same reason and putting in somebody who the advisor favoured, trying to get rid of the head of MI6, um, trying to get your own person in as uh, governor of the Bank of England, uh, knocking out several uh, permanent secretaries of state running the large departments, uh, talking about a shit list of um, poor performers. Uh, And So I asked a former head of the civil service, what was the protection within the constitution uh, against this happening again? They said there is nothing bar uh, the will of the prime minister. So uh, this could easily happen. And of course, in the United States with a written constitution, we had Donald Trump and might have him again. And it shows that there is an acute degree of flexibility, but that it does, the the constitution such as as it is in Britain depends upon a system of restraint uh, and respect uh, and trust and convention uh, and decorum. Two ethics advisors uh, left, Uh, they were getting uh, nowhere cabinet ministers who who uh, tried to protest against it were dis- dismissed by Boris Johnson as saying they were all uh, were beginning with the third letter of the alphabet uh, when another cabinet minister tried to uh, object to the dismissal. It really was like that. Uh, and the result is, is a series of deplorable decisions, whether over COVID, or failing to get uh, progress, um, 
uh, on uh, Brexit or to optimize the opportunity for uh, COP26 or to optimize uh, the benefit of um, Britain hosting the G7, Carbis Bay, uh, both domestically and abroad, uh, the system is dependent upon a prime minister operating uh, within parameters of agreed uh, conventions and understandings. He comes across as a, a sort of confused character. Here he, he, he was driven by ambition from a young age. There is sometimes uh, a streak of self-awareness and yet clearly he did not think before going into number 10 at all, did he, whether his characteristics could cope with the demands of number 10. Um, he clearly wanted it, thought about how to get it, how to use Brexit to get it, etc. But in a way, when you go for a job, you would think, am I suited for it, is at least a question that would be posed at some point. It clearly didn't happen. I think self-knowledge and Boris Johnson live in different houses on different continents. Um, He, on the way up, uh, whether editor of The Spectator or as mayor of London for eight years or or foreign secretary, uh, I tried to show in the book, uh, written with co-author Raymond Newell, that he wasn't learning. If anything, the opposite was the case, because there were always cheerleaders who laughed and egged him on when he was unconventional, um, didn't do his work properly, didn't read the briefs, hadn't any clear plan. Uh, In London, he had a very high-quality a range of people, Simon Milton, Ed Lister, uh, Neil Coleman included, but also women like Roysha Hughes, who he didn't uh, or wouldn't come in, and Will Walden, who wouldn't come into Downing Street with him. Uh, And they compensated for his weaknesses, but also um, knew how to exploit his um, not inconsiderable strengths. And then as Foreign Secretary, he learned... Uh, very little, and uh, as his time at number 10, it finished in total shambles when uh, he was waiting for David Davis to see whether he was going to resign after the Jackers Summit um, and thinking again about his career while there was a very important summit that was going on in London uh, that he needed to be hosting. It, it's an overused phrase, you couldn't make it up, but... but um, you couldn't make it up, actually. Uh, he wasn't. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. He wasn't yeah. learning, uh, Steve. That's the point. Yeah. The, those who climb up, uh, I mean, th- there has been a, a very worrying stripping away of experience for prime ministers up to Boris Johnson, himself included. Um, the five previous prime ministers had only served between them in three departments, whereas the five before that had served in 21 departments. Yeah. There's a narrowing down of departmental experience before you come and become prime minister. But also, he wasn't simply wasn't learning on the way. There wasn't a, a growth in his humility, uh, in his sense of who uh, he should be trusting. 
and the need to think and plan ahead. Uh, he, he was simply opportunistic and his mind is very scatty. It, it's all over the place. So he, when you then have that coming into, into number 10, he had no idea what he, what he wanted to do. Uh, he suddenly produced a plan for social care and he said, we have a plan. And his aides behind the black door of number 10 said, Prime Minister, what have you just said? We don't have a plan. And he, and he said, well, we're going to have to find one then, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and he had no plan for Brexit. He had no plan for levelling up. He had no idea how to get a plan, how, what a plan looked like. Um, he thought often, I think, that making a speech or an announcement was the same thing as uh, uh, delivering on policy. Uh, there are a series of, of jaw-dropping meetings he had with his senior cabinet colleagues when he hadn't prepared for anything or didn't understand it or both. And um, he then brought in Dominic Cummings because he was pricked into uh, into thinking that the civil service was going to eat him alive and therefore he needed uh, someone like Dominic Cummings to uh, guide him through and to make Brexit happen. And indeed, that's what he did. On Cummings, um, he emerges in a way as a complex character because unlike Johnson, he was obsessed with data, wasn't he, and reading things. Um, He was uh, complex, but you've already highlighted the the power he acquired as this unelected Mm. advisor. Uh, But at times he was an important counter, wasn't he, to the certainly the early phase of COVID, for example. You say, in a way, he kind of almost save Johnson from his own chaotic misreading of the scale of the crisis. Yes, and Boris Johnson needed Cummings, and Cummings achieved a lot. He could have achieved so much more with a better prime minister. Equally, a better prime minister wouldn't have needed to give him so much trust. And um, he was a mere opposite. Um, He was introvert, where Boris Johnson was extrovert. Boris Johnson hated uh, not being liked. Dominic Cummings uh, almost hated being liked. I think he didn't care what he said uh, to anybody. Um, uh, one was all over the detail with a ferociously quick, penetrating mind. Uh, the other was uh, nowhere near the detail. Um, we compare in the book Dominic Cummings to three earlier male uh, intellectuals, all in number 10, all Eurosceptics, all uh, highly unconventional, Alfred Sherman under Thatcher, um, Steve Hilton under Cameron, and Nick Timothy under Theresa May, um, and their similarities. But he had more power um, to the power of 10 than those three put together. And... um, you know, even then, well, Nick Timothy was extraordinarily uh, powerful on Theresa May, and for similar reasons. But he, um, even he, didn't have have anything like that same power. Yeah. Reading the book, I'm reminded that actually, a lot of that period has has not had the scrutiny it deserves because it was a historic period to rule, wasn't it? With uh, following the Brexit referendum and then COVID. And I mean, I, I thought I knew about it, but I read with growing alarm what you kind of narrated on Brexit. There really wasn't clarity, was there? Uh, Johnson was all over the place. Cummings had one idea. Uh, Johnson's appointed negotiator, David Frost, had another vision for Brexit. There, you know, this key moment 
where they had the space to negotiate uh, post Theresa May, and no one really knew what they wanted, or there was no collective view from within number 10. Uh, absolutely. And Munira Mertzer had a different idea, and Sajid yeah. Javid, the Chancellor, yet again a different idea. And because he never really understood uh, Brexit or the Northern Ireland Protocol, because he was never a ideological Brexiteer, um, he he hadn't thought it through. Uh, I mean, he he's a not unclever man, uh, but his it, it, it's his intellect is much more about speed. He didn't really. Um, I was told endlessly that he had endless books on the go. I see no evidence of uh, of those books creating any impression, nor do I really believe that he uh, read the classics and that the classics had a big impression on him. He travelled, Raymond and I conclude in the book, you know, policy light. He was ideologically light. He wasn't really a conservative. Um, he had no faith, no uh, beliefs, uh, very few friends. Um, he, he was, a, a, in many ways, a lost soul drifting over Downing Street and uh, beguiling people uh, who were often uh, not uh, top draw people, um, bringing them in because he gave them jobs that other prime ministers wouldn't have done. And um, he finished with a very rum collection of people around him. The shallowness also manifested itself with, um, uh, there he was, this figure who you conclude uh, was wholly unsuited for the job, uh, with the pandemic, one of the great crises facing any administration since 1945. And again, you uncover chaos. Um, I mean, it's going to be fascinating if we ever get to the end of this public inquiry. But, but in a way, your book, it was a form of inquiry. And there were moments, really, of dangerous chaos, wasn't there, in Number 10? Yes, uh, of, of out-of-control chaos. And, and uh, Raymond, co-author, um, was... Uh, we worked together on the research, and, and uh, Raymond brought it all together uh, brilliantly. And it does give you uh, 60 pages, it... Uh, overview of what happened and the mistakes that were made. Uh, he didn't have a settled view on how to deal with COVID any more than he did on Brexit or anything else. So he flip-flopped around. A lot depended on what he thought the Telegraph wanted. The Telegraph uh, was always in his mind. His aides could always get him to change his mind um, by saying that uh, Cameron and Osborne would be laughing at him or uh, that uh, the editor of the uh, Telegraph uh, was against him, and he would say, "Oh my goodness, we've got, we've got to change. We've got to." He, he, because his intellect wasn't attuned to dealing with data and drawing conclusions from that data, because he couldn't think of a, despite his classical training at Oxford, of thesis, uh, antithesis, and then synthesis. He, he. He couldn't secure firm positions. Instinctively, 
he was anti-lockdown, but he could see the benefit. It was to the great fortune of the country that there were people as outstanding um, as Valance and Witty uh, and a group of uh, officials who, who helped steer a course and, and bring him through. And there were some outstanding officials without which the story of the Johnson Premiership would have been even grimmer. Um, officials who he did very little to support or stand up for. They must have despaired at times. Well, they did. Um, I, I mean, they're completely, but everybody, everybody despaired. Uh, one senior official said he, he lied. What, what can we do with a prime minister? This is not Simon Case thing, by, by the way, the head of the civil service. Uh, uh, but somebody else said, 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 what can we do with a prime minister who lies morning, noon and night? Uh, doesn't even know that they're lying. Uh, can't remember entirely what he said in one meeting. And it's very difficult for officials, they'd say, when there'd be a meeting, a decision had been reached, and one would never then know whether it would be unraveled half an hour later when he listened to somebody else uh, with a different point of view. There wasn't the intellectual strength there, the intellectual confidence to be able to uh, reach a settled conclusion and then abide by it. Uh, everything was not serious and everything was a, a joke or uh, a, a, a jape and you could try and uh, be funny about it. it. And he wasn't very good at knowing who he could trust. And he was so insecure, so unwilling to trust people. And part of that, I think, uh, goes back, Steve, to Michael Gove stabbing him in the back. Yeah. Uh, in 2016, when yeah. Gove decided he didn't want to be his campaign manager, uh, but was going to stand against him. And uh, people very, very close to him who care for Boris Johnson said that that was a very significant moment, adding to his lack of trust of anybody. Uh, so was Cummings turning on him. So were so many people uh, turning on him. It It seemed to provide conclusive proof to him that he couldn't trust anybody in life. Um, the sadness was that they, there were people he could trust, including his second uh, wife, who uh, was somebody uh, of uh, extraordinary um, uh, thoughtfulness and stability, uh, but he chose to depart, or that they parted with Marina Wheeler, yeah, and 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 that was a significant loss. So there, there are various ghosts hanging over the premiership. Marina Wheeler is one. She was like, in my mind, Sydney Courtauld, who was um, the wife of Rab Butler. She died in December 1954. The Chancellor of Exchequer, and and she provided a lot of the steel and the iron for him. Uh, and other ghosts would be Jeremy Hayward, clearly, because there was a giant of a figure capable of commanding the civil service. Um, uh, dismissed as um, uh, by uh, many around Johnson and on the centre-right of the Conservative Party for being, I don't know, pro-Remain or perhaps pro-civil service. Uh, and uh, another ghost was Chris Martin, the highly gifted Treasury civil servant, uh, who was Prince Private Secretary, head of the private office to David Cameron, who also died of cancer like Hayward. And, and yeah. these, the loss of these people, uh, the loss of Ollie Robbins, um, although he was very tainted with um, uh, Remain, 
Um, if you lose your best people you, or you don't trust the best people, you're never going to succeed as a prime minister. It's hard enough to be prime minister anyway. Uh, you need the very best. You don't need mates. You need people who are going to tell you the truth. Uh, and, but, you know, I mean, Steve, here's the point. He could have great look go back over history as um, I did in Impossible Office, uh, the book. Yeah. There are only nine prime ministers who really made the weather, changed the course of history as prime minister out of uh, 55 um, from 1721 to 2021. And they've all been there at moments of great historic moment uh, and beg the question, are great prime ministers, do they make history or are they made by history? Mm. Boris Johnson had not one, not two, but three great events on his watch, Brexit, uh, the epidemic, and... Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and he he had the opportunity and the ambition and the the, the understanding of the sweep of history and the optimism and the ability to to to, to reach people across the country. Uh, he had the, the the potential to to be one of those transformative prime ministers, uh, but rather than being at the top, he's right at the bottom. It's 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 interesting seeing him now. He pops up and appears confident uh, in his uh, public appearances. Uh, you have uh, a few Tory figures, uh, recently Priti Patel, Nadine Doris, all the time, uh, saying what a terrible loss it is that he was toppled. And I wonder, do you think he's read your book, Boris Johnson, um, and what he might think as he read it? I don't know. Um, you'd have to ask him, Steve, and maybe one day you will. Uh, I think that he wasn't willing to listen to advice he didn't want to hear. Yeah. And he prioritised appointing people who told him what he wanted to hear. So when people like Dominic Cummings and, and Lee Kane uh, in the first period of um, uh, his premiership or uh, Dan Rosenfield in the second, or Linton Crosby and others in his third period, um, were telling him what he didn't want to hear. He wouldn't listen. He he, he wanted to hear what he wanted to hear, uh, and that's a very dangerous trait in any leader. You have to have the intellectual confidence, like a uh, like a Thatcher had, like a Clement Attlee had to listen to divergent points of view, again, on that thesis, antithesis, synthesis model. He didn't get the antithesis. So I doubt if he's read the book because, right. because he, know, he what won't can want he do to, about it? Eh? Yeah, he won't want to read it. Uh, the, the, the fear of scrutiny in any form is a common theme in, in, in your book, hence the weak cabinet, since you say at the very end. They were very weak. Uh, and, and, incredibly and he, weak entourage at the yeah. end. Um is, I think I've read all your books. You've chronicled many prime ministers, as we discussed at the beginning. And you get a sense of them, a very clear sense of them. You describe Johnson as, as a lost soul. Do you feel you know him? Does he know himself, this figure who still apparently wants to come back to be prime minister, in spite of all the things that you have chronicled in his time in number 10? Is um, there a, a, a core to know and understand in Johnson? So clearly knowing ourselves is perhaps the highest human 
appalling and it's clearly very difficult as everyone from the ancient Greeks onwards have told us that it is. Um, I don't think to come to conclude where we began, Steve, that he is, he is re reflective and you need to be a reflective practitioner to, to be a successful leader uh, you, and you have to uh, do that by, by having around you people who are telling you the truth. And uh, you then have to be able to, to take that on uh, the chin. He clearly, as you say, was driven by a huge ambition. Um, there is that famous uh, film called The Candidate with Robert Redford in it. Uh, about Californian primary, was it, which is all about making this um, charismatic, uh, quite good-looking, well, very good-looking, in Robert Redford's case, uh, leader in, in, into the, the, the key figure. And at the end, he does win, and he turns around and says, what now? And, and Boris Johnson, like after Brexit, uh, padding around his um, North London home in a Brazilian T-shirt and trainers uh, was saying, oh, oh my goodness, um, we've won. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And he didn't know what to do. Mm. He didn't know what to do because he was so driven by hurt or by ambition or by both to be the most important person in the room. He couldn't abide not being the most important person in the room. He can't abide not being loved. He turned around at one moment during the 2012 Olympics, a moment of adulation that he longed and ached to, to recreate when he was prime minister. And he turned to an aide in 2012 as the crowd, crowds were clapping and cheering him and, and says, life doesn't get any better than this. And, and life doesn't. He, he Just a desperate hunger to feed off a, a, an adulation, to be at the top uh, without knowing... Or, or having a sense of moral duty. To be a successful prime minister, you need to be uh, both a storyteller, and he couldn't tell a consistent story, uh, and a healer. Uh, you need to be both good at the job and good at being a human being, to, to have integrity. Mm. Uh, and he wasn't, he was neither good at the job nor, nor good at, at humanness. And and we all we all, all suffered, and and it will contribute to uh, is contributing to problems the Tories have now. And at the yeah. end, Steve, uh, you know what will be left with? Uh, we were left with uh, rising prices, rising fuel prices that could have been anticipated. Uh, we were left with uh, Brexit, uh, the dividend uh, largely undone, Northern Ireland in a terrible mess, uh, strikes, uh, levelling up, unlevelled up. Um, discontent uh, and, and lack of trust and respect um, for the office. Uh, he was full of hatred, hatred for Parliament, didn't like Parliament, didn't like Conservative Party, didn't like politicians, didn't like Cabinet, didn't like Whitehall, didn't like the media, didn't like BBC, didn't like universities. Um, you can't run a country like that. So um, I was sad that uh, I, you know, that the, sad that the book has come out like this. I mean, I think both Raymond Newell and I uh, were really shocked to discover uh, that even the people, and the book is informed by the best source of all, which is the people in the room, uh, the people yeah. who are trained to, to, to listen, look, observe, 
and to be objective uh, that they uh, had such a series of damning uh, verdicts. It, it is extraordinary. And, and you understand the dilemmas prime ministers face and are therefore by instinct uh, empathic, and yet you have discovered a whole range of, well, just alarming insights in, in the book. Um, are you going to do the Liz Truss period? Oh, Steve, I just don't know. I always think at the end, I mean, they're so exhausting, these books. Um, five hours sleep a night, uh, seven days a week. Um, now I'm back running a school with a particular story attached to it. I know. I, I, I never know. I, I feel so burnt out. And, and now I just feel there's an, just a bad taste in, in the mouth following uh, this book. And we've set up at the Institute for Government, um, the Commission for Government. I took the idea to it. And Hannah White, chair of the um, Institute for Government, is is the chair, head of it. She's chairing it. I'm deputy chair. And we're looking at, you know, what can we learn from all of this and, and from earlier prime ministers to create a better centre, a better number 10 office, cabinet office, treasury, uh, core relationship to serve the country, all people in the country better, and to anticipate problems like uh, AI, uh, uh, like uh, cost of living, like the environment, um, uh, the environmental crisis, to have long-term planning uh, and to have rationality and far more, as coming said, far more specialists and far more respect for data in there. Um, and rather than this, uh, you know, what we had. Yeah. Well, look, um, yeah, that is an important project, a bizarrely underexplored area of what is required for leadership and power. Um, and certainly Boris Johnson wasn't the answer, as your book brilliantly chronicles. Uh, Anthony Selden, thank you so much for giving up the time. I know you're extremely busy with your new role and uh, greatly appreciate exploring just some of the themes in an extraordinary book about... A, a, a period which will have consequences for many years to come. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Steve. So there we are. That was uh, Anthony Selden in conversation uh, with me about his book on Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether it will sound equally despondent if he ever gets round to writing what will probably be a briefer volume on Liz Truss uh, and who knows where the Sunak period will end. Um, but I say, I think you know it raises so many fascinating issues. How did a figure like that, wholly unsuited for leadership, rise to the top? How did he avoid scrutiny for so long? What are the constraints on a prime minister, especially one that uh, has won big, as Johnson did in December 2019? Their answer is, of course, virtually none. There was one for Johnson, that was Dominic Cummings, and he uh, sacked Cummings. Um, I'm still really keen at some point to interview Cummings, who I think I misread um, when he was kind of in the shadows. There's always a danger of misreading people in the shadows. Um, they are, tend to be more complex than caricature suggests. Um, but anyway, there we are. We are all living through the consequences of what Anthony and I were just uh, discussing. So yeah, those consequences will be being played out 
over the coming days as they always are. Uh, so I think we better all gather together uh, very shortly to make sense of it all once again. Thanks so much for listening. See you all soon. Bye.